So welcome to everyone uh, who is joining in. Uh, this is a, um, a new reading group that we've launched at Study Center, and I think many of you were with us uh, for the first uh, session. Uh, the, the reading group uh, was really cultivated or created with the idea of, of, um, of cultivating the life of the mind, or at least being a resource for those in the community who are seeking to do this. And often we just need some people to, uh, to do this with in a regular way, um, especially given the way that our schedules, the, the tyranny of the urgent sort of operates in our lives. Um, and so uh, this uh, this book, uh, Zena Hitz's book, Loss and Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, uh, seemed to me like a, a fabulous way to to kick off um, this reading group and, and launch our, our work. And uh, I mentioned uh, to Zena before everyone was on that I, I, I took it as a kind of pep talk for the life of the mind for those who are setting out on that um, on that venture. Uh, and I was glad to, to hear that, that she wrote it in that spirit. So it's always uh, glad to, to see that you're receiving the book in the way that's intended. Um, so we're, we are delighted, uh, and I'm very grateful to have, uh, Professor Hitz with us, who is currently uh, a tutor at St. John's University in Annapolis, Maryland. And, uh, I, I've been, uh, really glad to see how much press your book is getting. Um, I, I think not a day goes by that, uh, I didn't see a review somewhere of, uh, of the work and generally very positive. Uh, so thank you for, for joining us. And I think most of you know that what we'll do uh, tonight is um, uh, sort of a, I don't want to think of it as an interview, but but I'll um, ask uh, Professor Hitz a few questions here to get us going. And then about uh, 8.30, we'll shift to uh, question and answer with with all of you. And, and, and as you can see, we're a relatively small number. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll just sort of call on you. If you can unmute yourselves if you like, um, as long as there's no uh, background noise. Obviously, even now, uh, you're welcome to do that. And um, and I think it'll be pretty easy to sort of navigate who has questions and, and give way appropriately as uh, as we come to that point. And then we'll wrap up around um, around nine o'clock. So that's the plan for the evening. Again, welcome on behalf of the study center. And um, uh, Professor, I, I did think I would I begin with uh, a question about St. John's. Um, I, I had a roommate who attended St. John's, so I was kind of familiar with the program. And for a very long time, I didn't mention this to you. I, I began a lot of my classes um by reading an essay uh, by Eva Braun, a talk that she gave, um, I think to the incoming class, uh, I forget what year it was given. And uh, I thought that that was a great way to sort of kick off classes and, and cultivate the spirit in which I wanted those classes conducted. So um, that said, others may not be familiar with St. John's, which is a very unique institution. Um, am I right in recalling that it, it is one of the oldest colleges uh, in the United States? Well, so it, it, it is, its charter is one of the oldest. So its charter goes to 1696, um, which I think makes it the third or the fourth oldest. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't get into the competition. Right. But uh, the program that's there now, so it, it was um, a school for, the charter is for a school for boys. And then it became, in the 19th century, uh, uh, Episcopalian seminary. Oh, I did not um, know that. And then a then a military school, um, uh, and then uh, it went bankrupt in the depression in the thirties, and uh, that was at a time when the great books movement, which mm-hmm. was very big in the early twentieth century, um, it I've been trying to learn as much of the history as I can because it's relevant mm-hmm. to the kind of topics that come in my book that. There were these grassroots intellectual mm-hmm. movements. They started in England um, among working people and connected with the labor movement. And the idea was to take this elite aristocratic education and 
um, win it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they formed reading groups and, you know, read Plato and lo- looked at the stars through telescopes and all kinds of things, which are very inspiring to read about now. Yeah. Uh, and so out of that came the great books movement in the U S and, um, so Mortimer Adler is probably the most famous figure in Hutchins at Chicago. And they founded these programs in Chicago and in Columbia. And so St. John's, when St. John's went bankrupt, two of the members of their circle uh, founded um, what they called the new program, which was an all great books college. And it was meant to have the, the egalitarian spirit of those movements. So it was meant to be an education for everybody and uh, a, a general education, uh, an education that honored uh, an amateur, fresh approach to old disciplines and that values um, the, the struggle of the individual to understand mm-hmm. for himself or herself over the sort of passive reception of facts, which... Um, the great book movement people were very concerned about even as long ago as the twenties and thirties. I think if they saw what happened now, I think they, they would uh, be absolutely horrified Mm -hmm. at the kind of passivity that I think Mm -hmm. really infected our educational system. So we have a four year all required program in um, great books. They're uh, uh, Western, uh, although we don't talk about that as much anymore as we used to. Um, And, uh, we start with the ancient Greeks. We go through to the books from the 20th century, no 21st century authors yet. Um, and um, there's a program in math that corresponds to it. it starts with Euclid and goes through ancient and Renaissance astronomy and the origins of physics and contemporary biology. There's a, um, sorry, I must have mixed up the math and the science there, but sorry. <laughs> there's a science program and a yeah. math program and they're separate. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's all required. It's very, they're very small campuses. They're 400 students apiece, 400 in Annapolis, 400 in Santa Fe. Uh, and uh, the spirit of the place is very much, uh, yeah, read these books, enter into a conversation with them for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, form a community with others. And the emphasis in part of why it's always been so close to my heart, I was a student there as well, is the, the sense of the search. Uh, mm-hmm that what matters about the intellectual life is not getting the answer, but somehow progressing towards some goal that you mm-hmm. don't always even quite see what it is in advance. Mm-hmm. Which can be very exhilarating. Uh, I think once you sort of get a taste for that um, and, and the classes, if I remember correctly, are, are all conducted as seminars. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that conversational frame seems to be really important um, to the ethos of the place. That's right. And we, 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 we have other strange customs. Uh, we, the, not only is the whole curriculum required for everybody, including lots of quite difficult math and science and languages and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but we're required to teach throughout mm-hmm. the program. So, right. uh, that means that we come to it a bit fresher than we would to our expertise and we're more like a collaborator. Yeah. Or a, a you know, we, we still have intellectual maturity. We mentor our students in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't um, we don't tell them our ideas, transmit our ideas to them, which right. they put back to us, and then they get an A, you know, which is a kind of standard. Yeah. Right. And and I and my, my so a follow up to that, it sort of does regard the question of pedagogy and and how one thinks about um, 
about that sort of, I guess, how we transmit the love of the life of the mind, right? How, um, I, I did note, for example, on, um, made a, uh, a note here, there's, um, a paragraph or two, uh, page 28 of your book and, and use the word catch and caught a couple of times, which is, is the language that I've also sort of resorted to. Um, because there is, you, you can't make someone desire this, so to speak, right? Um, and, and this pursuit, um, as soon as you sort of get out of that frame of, I'm going to tell you things, you're going to repeat them on, on an exam and this is what we're doing, but rather you want to activate the search as it were in each individual. Um, there's a kind of art to that, or, or maybe there's not even an art. Um, how do you think about that as a, as a, as a tutor at St. John's and do you have, so how do I, how do people catch, catch yeah, on? Like, how do you, how do you motivate? What, what, what are your strategies for motivating? I suppose the students are coming to St. John's. They're coming for a very distinct product. Um, and maybe it's the case that they don't need very much motivation. Um, so they, they, um, I think we do benefit from having a particular style of education. Yeah. You, and we do try to use admissions to make sure that people know what they're getting into yeah. for mm-hmm. students sake and for our sake. Right, because uh, it's too unusual a place to that you don't want to you don't want to stumble in there by accident. Um, so you want to have prepared yourself in some way for a pretty unusual uh, type of education. Yeah. But the so some to some extent they're already prepared. But I and I think that you know a, a lot of what it's not so much something I do as something which I let happen. Mm-hmm. And that the, the institution is, so to speak, set up to do. So there's the encounter between the book and the student, which is in a way primary. You know, you, at least the way I think about it, every human being is, can be caught, touched by fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. Um, they can think, they want to think deeply about their life, why it matters, the nature of the universe, et cetera. It's just something that's built into us. So, but it's not really accessible and many, many people have not been, have not tapped into it or have been, have been trained to, to think about that kind of question. So these, the books are a big part of it. So there are these wonderful books that come to us. There's, uh, as we know, a variety of traditions in which um, cultures pass on uh, their wisdom and their stories. Um, and, uh, these, so the books have this very moving power. Um, but of course they're difficult to read for us. Uh, they might, Homer might have been the TV of eighth century BC, but it's not quite TV for us anymore. So then, then I think what happens is you have this, Everyone does the same thing at the same time. So there's this community. So you, you're, you're under a bit of pressure to really read it, uh, to talk about it in other, with others. Um, there's lots of opportunities to do that. And you, you sit, you know, a lot of, it's very hard to teach this way to sit back and let students bring their own questions and work them out with one another and intervene to direct things without um, squashing the conversation. Uh, so it's, uh, and I think uh, another big part of it, so it's the books and it's the community and the, just the, the structure of the thing. Mm-hmm. 
And something I've been thinking about since we've all moved online, because of course, I think it must be impossible to do incredibly long, difficult readings, you know, in your basement of your parents' house, uh, you know, instead of on a campus where everyone else is doing that. Uh, There's all kinds of little things that go into it. Uh, But I also think that, that a teacher is uh, a model learner and, um, and also, and, and really a lot of the best teaching that people have had in their lives has been through uh, a personal connection with a teach that is there's a teacher who's interacting with them mm-hmm. who listens to their thoughts uh, helps to push them in one direction or away from another direction gives them little bits of advice feedback um, and models a certain way of being yeah. for them I think that's I think that's honestly most of what I do is um, I model for them the the type of learning I that I that I think that they yeah. want to do and that takes a certain amount of effort because it's it's hard work to be the person <laughs> to be a yeah. model for young right. people y'all right. know anyone who's who's been sound with young people knows. yeah um let me ask you a little bit about the the shape that the life of the mind takes um and and what I have in mind here um is that you so you give two examples later in the book of um Augustine and the Confessions providing one model for what the life of the mind can look like. Um, and I see that as sort of being um, uh, a model of, of reflection, an intellectual pursuit, a search for truth, um, a capital T truth about ourselves. Um, and then you give a novelistic example uh, that reflects sort of the way that art can encourage this. The art in question though, is, is the novel. And, and so it also has a sort of textual kind of quality to it. Um, although early in the book, you, you talk about how the life of the mind can sort of maybe take um, shape in a variety of contexts. Um, and so how broadly should we think about the life of the mind, right? Is it, is it just this sort of textual activity that happens over the, over the great books? Um, in what ways can it happen maybe in the midst of more mundane activities? Uh, how should we think about that? Uh, I think that's a great question. And, um, there's a lovely piece that came out today actually about, um, uh, um, I'm not going to remember his name because it's been a long day, but the, the fellow who they made that wonderful movie about recently, the, uh, conscious objector to the Nazis, uh, the name is just slipping my mind. Yes. Uh, and, I, I, and I can't help you, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, is it no, no, it's a yeah, famous no. Catholic conscientious objector. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. And they just made a film about him, a famous yes, maker. Yeah. Oh, Terrence Malick made the film. Okay. Yes, right. Anyway, there's a nice piece about it. And this, this man was a, a peasant. You know, it didn't, he didn't achieve who he was, his independence and his strength of mind and his clarity and his, um, what he had a certain kind of a contemplative, excellence that wasn't connected at all with books mm-hmm. this reviewer was arguing so I, I i have it on my mind today for that reason yeah. that question but i i think even before you get to that really basic question like are there are there forms of what i'd call contemplation which mm-hmm. are um not not textual or and maybe you wouldn't even recognize as intellectual maybe they're forms of prayer or mm-hmm. um some other or communion with other people, you know, how does, where does that fit into the life of the mind? So those are kind of at one end. And I, I, I think that there's an affinity. I'll say that much. So I, I don't know whether I want to say there are two different routes to the same 
thing or whether it's all contemplation and um, books are just one way of doing it. Uh, that's one possibility. But there's also in between uh, non-textual, straightforwardly intellectual mm-hmm. things like the study of birds or plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so the study of the natural world in is non-textual, but intellectual. Uh, maybe you write it yeah. down. Um, but I think yeah. you could also just collect. One of the things I try to talk about in the book is that you know, intellectual life doesn't matter for its results. So mm-hmm. just in the same way that you probably know a very wise, uh, learned person who's never written a word mm-hmm. and is not a professional teacher of any kind, mm-hmm. Uh, there are also people who know everything about birds uh, and they're not um, or stars or uh, Gettysburg or <laughs> all kinds right. of things like this. Yeah. Uh, and they, they're not going to write it down. They're not doing research, but they have it in there. It's shaped who they are. Mm-hmm. It's part of, part of their inner world. And, um, and it's, it, it's contemplative and it's intellectual and it's, it's not connected with texts. So, so I'm a book person. I always have been, yeah. but yeah. So the, the book kind of leans, my own book leans towards, mm-hmm. but I, I'm very open to this being a, a broad uh, set of human, human activities and human conditions, which um some of which might not even be recognizably intellectual or we wouldn't necessarily call intellectual. Right. Uh, I, I recalled um, uh, Matthew Crawford many years ago now wrote that book, um, uh, Shop uh, Classes Soulcraft. And that's where he talks about uh, his work as a mechanic uh, being a kind of, of intellectual labor that's not recognized as such, uh, but nonetheless sort of engages his mind in a way that he finds rewarding and satisfying. Um, does that fit in that into that picture? You know, it's very interesting. I, um, I, I think I don't talk about that in the book. I talk about manual labor as being mm-hmm. something that leaves your mind free. To think. Yeah. I think it's true also. Right. But there's probably, I'm sure there's something contemplative about it because you're any kind of mechanics or engineering, you're putting pieces together mm-hmm. and you're thinking about a whole and you're puzzling out details. And in that way, it's not so different from uh, puzzling over a poem, the pieces of a poem or a math problem. I mean, I'm, that's just coming to my mind right now. That's yeah, not something yeah. I've fully developed. Right. But I, I think it, there's something in it certainly seems like it. Um, and I think the only thing that wouldn't make it the case would be if it was very pragmatic. So if you're just doing something to get it done, um, and it's mechanical, it's practical, yeah. then, then you probably don't get that much of the contemplative flavor, but right. you, I, I think a lot of people who do that kind of work do have that spirit to it. They're, they're, yeah. they're thinking about the way things work. Um, and, uh, that's, that's in a way I would call that a bit technically, but I would call that part of the study of nature or something like that. Yeah. You're thinking about materials. You're thinking about what, what makes things tick. You're you're admiring the. It's a creative act, right? Mm-hmm. You're, so all of these things seem true to me. And yeah. I, I want to be as inclusive. I'm not interested in right, right. narrow. I want it to be as broadly human as possible and as available as as possible without losing some of its special character. 
Yeah, and absolutely. I think that definitely comes across in, in the book. Um, I, I was um, reminded of a, a wonderful quote uh, from Iris Murdoch, who's one of my intellectual heroes. Um, it is a task to see the world as it is. Um, and, and so is that, that, that's a question of attention. It seems like it, a capacity to, to focus one's attention, um, to, to have the world disclose its, its realness to us in, in an important way. Um, what, how, what part does that play in the life? I mean, is that, that's not the whole of it. Um, does that activity, is that a stepping stone to something? Are we, are we touching something else beyond that? When do you mean when we see the world as it is or do in, you, in that? Yeah. And that labor, you mean in the struggle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause those seem like, I mean, maybe that's too nitpicky or something, but there's this task of seeing the world as it is, uh, which I, I think that's it. Uh, I don't think there's, at least for the purposes of defining intellectual life, that's mm-hmm. not, it, it's, it's not beyond that necessarily. Mm-hmm. So in the book, of course, I'm, I'm try. it's a book from a, a Catholic perspective, from a religious perspective, yeah. but it's leaving the door open to people who aren't believers. Yeah. So th- there's something else that I say, that I would say if, you know, if you were to say, is that all there is? Then I might say, well, for a believer, that's, it's the window onto, um, mm-hmm. God, the creator, right? I mean, you see the world as it is. Yeah. That's, that's some kind of contact um, with with God, uh, but that I I don't define that in uh, in because I don't want to lose right. uh, readers, and I and I think that there is a really robust secular intellectual life that needs to be honored in some way. Right. But I do think ultimately you um, there's a, you're you're aiming at something transcend something outside yourself that's transcendent in some way. Um, and uh, for believers, that's God. And for non-believers, sometimes it's, I think it's something I say in the book is sometimes it's something like the absence of God. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're reaching beyond and you find sort of the space where God would be if he was there for you. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really wonderful way of putting that. Um, it, 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 there's um a certain degree of, of meaningfulness that you, that one achieves, you know, even from a, um, a non-believing perspective um, that it it's, you still taste this enriching of your life. It seems like in, in this, in this work. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful work of criticism that influenced me in thinking about this by called real presences by George, George Steiner. Steiner. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, he's not a believer of any kind. Right. As I know, but he, and you know, I just died last year. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, he, that, that somehow the point of language and art and all literature is something transcendent. We're, re- we're reaching for it. Um, and of course, if you're a, a, a Christian of most stripes, reaching for it is actually all you can do, right? The rest mm-hmm. is going to be, if, if it's, if you're going to meet God, he's, it's, that's grace. Uh, right. It does that. Uh, so, uh, I think that's another reason to be, to, to be a little bit less heavy handed about it. Yeah. Uh, when I talk that way. And, and that's, uh, I appreciate your answer. You, you, um, in fact, you kind of segued into another question I was going to ask was, which was sort of negotiating, um, the relation between the life of the mind and the religious life. Um, 
whether those are things that um, run on parallel tracks or if they have a kind of stepping stone type quality to them or, or how they go together. And, and maybe I'll, I'll ask this, um, this one last question as we, we are uh, coming here to the bottom of the hour before we open it up to the uh, other participants here. But um, the, this, this idea that learning, learning for its own sake. So that immediately resonates with me. Um, I think it's something that I've tried to advocate for, for as long as I've been a teacher that there's, uh, the utilitarian um, aims that we sometimes attach to learning um, are short uh, changing us as human beings and, and, and the task of education, et cetera. And so someone who maybe was coming from a certain religious background might however say, is it, is learning, is it for its own sake? Does that verge on, um, I don't want to put it too strongly in terms of like, I, I see how it might strike some as sort of an almost an idolatrous claim, right? Uh, that it is, it elevates the life of learning to a place that of ultimate good rather than penultimate good. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, uh, well, let me try this angle on that mm-hmm. question. So I, I do think that there's no simple answer in a general way about the connection between uh, being a religious person and being an intellectual, because one of the reasons why I think there is, there can be sort of justified anti-intellectualism in religious communities is that we can use the, the intellect, like we can use anything as a, as a kind of defense against God, a very religious, pious people can do this. Mm-hmm. You can build up a kind of edifice of theological words <laughs> It's yeah. not, it's not really about God. It's about right. you or some fear of yours or whatever. So uh, for me, I have to say, and this colors the way the book is written and the way that I try to carry myself. For me, uh, they were very, uh, holistically integrated. So I grew up without any religion. My being intellectual, especially the kind of open-ended searching type of thing that I found at St. John's as an undergraduate. That really opened me up to the world of faith in a way that mm-hmm. would have been hard to imagine another way for me. I mean, God can do what he wants, but yeah. th- that's definitely the way that it happened for me. It, 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 it sort of softened some of the more, uh, hard, the hard mm-hmm. structures that were in my mm-hmm. mind that were, that were keeping me from it. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so, and then once I converted, uh, it was an enormous help in my intellectual life because I was suddenly free from, you know, not suddenly, but <laughs> gradually after much labor, yeah. um, yeah. free, freer and freer from certain kinds of fear. Um, and it helped me to think mm-hmm. more clearly and to speak more courageously and all of these things. Um, so it, yeah. for me, it's been, yeah, I don't, so for me, it's been positive. I know that isn't always. Yeah. No, that, no, I'm avoiding a little bit your question about the, um, for its own sake versus for a beyond. And it connects to Augustine because, um, of course, there's this shocking to me passage in, uh, the confessions. He's talking about the vice of the mind, which is curiositas. Mm-hmm. Um, I translate it in the book as love of spectacle or something like that. But he says that it's knowing for knowing's sake. Yeah. And when I, when I stuck, when I came across that, I was like, Oh no, wait, <laughs> something's wrong. <laughs> I've been promoting knowing for its own sake. Yeah. 
And I, th- I think that what he means is he means you're just exercising the capacity for the sake of exercise. It's like, um, uh, you're, you're trapped in the, the feeling of knowing mm-hmm. just like you might be trapped in the feeling of seeing or the feeling of hearing or the feeling of touch without, mm-hmm. without, re- without using those faculties to reach an object, mm-hmm. to reach a reality. Uh, so your eyes and your ears and your mind are all supposed to get to something else that's not you. That's what they're mm-hmm. designed. They're, they're like, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're windows or tentacles or however you want to think about it. They're supposed to connect you and something. Right. So I, I think that that has to be true. Um, and that has to be part of the, whatever learning for its own sake really means, which I think means, I think it means, learning for the sake of one's own growth and development so it's learning for one's own sake mm-hmm. um and where that doesn't mean for one's own sake as a as a as a holder of status or a maker of money but but as uh, as a as a developed human being um yeah so i i think there's something about learning for its own sake that is it's not a quite clear notion for that reason. It's, it's really, we really just use it to contrast yes. with, with, you know, learning for utilitarian right. reasons. And when you really try to look at it closely, it, 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 it fragments in different directions. Yeah. But I, I, I'm still convinced there's something there that, yeah. that, that is really valuable and really important. However, we end up articulating it. Um, and so I, I, you know, I keep trying, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, there's something muddy about it. Sure. And, and certainly to draw the contrast between the prevailing modes of thinking about, um, the work of education, that it is always for something other than itself. Um, I, I think of the distinction between, um, you know, goods that are internal to a practice and those that are external to it and, right. and learning for its own sake is, is to pursue the internal goods. Um, right. I, I don't know. I think that it's connected with the thought that, you know, these examples, which uh, I end the book with, you know, you think about these very ordinary people. Again, I know you, you all know one or two mm-hmm. um, very ordinary people who have just developed their minds and their souls in, in, to an incredible degree, not not in a way that's visible, not in a way that's famous or has a big impact mm-hmm. or is written up in magazines or makes them a lot of money, but they're extraordinary humans. And that's, that's, that has its value in itself. Yeah. Um, it's worth, it's, it's mm-hmm. worth becoming that because of what it is. Right. Uh, not because uh, it gets you stuff. So it, yeah. it it's deeply connected with the value of a human being and a, and you know what it means to, and and that we're creatures that progress and grow and develop virtues and habits and forms of mind, and it has something to do with that. Yeah, with, with coming to uh, sort of realize the um, our intrinsic nature, uh, as it were, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna fully, refrain to now. Ourselves, right? What's that? Be fully ourselves. Or yes. Yeah. Right. 
I, I think in the last meeting I, I cited um, Irenaeus's line about the, the glory of God as a human being fully alive, and, and that in, in involves this, this work of, of putting the mind to use in this way, because that that's in no small measure what it was created to do, and, and there are satisfactions that come from that. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I so, so I'll refrain from asking my my questions now, um, and uh, I'll be be happy to sort of open up the floor. And again, feel free to, to unmute yourself and um, and jump in here. Professor, um, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated your book. Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, I was I was trying to come. Up, I was trying to think of questions that um, arose as I was reading. I I had read this book in conjunction with Alan Jacobs' How to Think, mm-hmm. um, and he he talks a little bit about thinking for yourself. And I was wondering what you would have to say about that notion because you talk about inwardness, um, sort of retreating into yourself, the life of the mind as being a sort of retreat from the world of competition and approval and money. Um, so what would you have to say about that more enlightenment, liberalism, liberalism notion of um, thinking for yourself? Well, so it, unfortunately for me, uh, I haven't had a chance to read that particular Jacob's book. I know some of his other words, so I don't, I don't know what his particular, and he always has very distinctive, points of view so you can't predict them in advance uh i i'm i am a fan of thinking for oneself so i i have learned a lot from the liberal tradition um it has um it it can go in the wrong direction it can be um self-destructive in certain ways so i do talk a lot and i mean to emphasize the 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 way in which intellectual life is also a mode of connecting, a mode of communion, uh, a mode of community with others. And that's true, interestingly enough, even, even in those cases where I talk about someone who's withdrawn from the world and has their closet where they read their books, those books have authors um, and to read a book is to have human contact with that author. And there's often people within the book that they introduce you to. So there's a, uh, there's a certain kind of community just in reading. And then it really does culminate, I think, in, in communication with others about it, conversation, um, thinking with others and for others. So I do think that thinking for oneself, if, if it can become a kind of compulsion where you're like, oh no, I don't agree with you because I've got to think for myself. And I think I definitely fall into that sometimes. Uh, I'm a contrarian by nature and things like that. But, but I also think that if, if it, learning in community is important for that reason. So you do need others. Um, you need the help of others. Uh, you need to trust others to some extent. That's part of being a healthy human being. But I do think that, especially now in this environment, in a way, it's a very contextual point. It's not a big theory thing. Like, there's a lot of people telling us what to think and digesting our learning for us, much more than when I was young. Um, and uh, to me, it's very scary. Uh, and uh, so for me, thinking for oneself means... Uh, not really be not being dominated in your mind by uh, people who really might not be trustworthy. You know, you have to be careful and discerning about 
who you place your trust in and um the the particular kind of world that we live in right now is one where learning to trust oneself and one's own judgment so that one can trust others and learn from others is really important. So that first step is very important, I think. Thinking for yourself to the point of trusting your judgment to the point where you can learn, where, where you know who to trust, where you have some confidence in who to trust. Uh, I don't know if that helps. It's a little mushy maybe, but uh, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of the fact that, that um, so many of us spend uh, too much time on social media and the, the temptation in, in social media is to, I think, to calibrate your thinking in keeping with either, um, you know, your sort of perceived standards of virality, uh, or with the, the particular sort of coordinates that you've set for yourself, right? So, right. so you, I think there is really a temptation to, to police one's own voice, um, to, to not trust oneself to have an opinion until we know what this other person, what his take was. And then, then we're sort of feel safe. This is the appropriate take to use, but right? And- there's actually truthfully, I find myself under a lot of pressure. I mean, I, with practice, you get better at resisting, but it, you know, I, I, I'm very careful to, to not, you know, to not be divisive. So if I, if I, if I, if I talk about a, say a political issue, it's going to be an issue that no one really cares about, like something like that. I, I never make presidential endorsements or I feel like, I feel like there's a, um, or like, yeah, education. No one cares about this. So the, um, the, the pressure I feel is the pressure to sound like, you know, to, to be a part of the group. It's like, take a side. You know, look, everyone's speaking out against this outrage. Aren't you outraged too? Like you join the outrage. And so for me, the discipline is I don't need to do that. I don't need to be part of this group. I don't need to be a part of the mass. I don't need to pronounce on this. Like I'm here for a very particular reason, which is to um, promote this type of learning, which is written about in the book and, Mm -hmm. and a little bit of entertainment for myself, which kind of, sparkles up the page a little bit entertain you know draws people in uh but it's uh, so i i think that's that's the environment we're in it's very very what they used to call conformist Mm -hmm. uh you've got to fit in there's different groups but you've got to join one um that's the pressure uh and uh i think really um you, you know, you can join a group, like, you know, you can, you gotta be in a church, you gotta, you know, have a family, you have to be part of a community, but those are real communities. Um, and, and, and ideally they're free communities that give you the space to be who you are. Um, and to come at whatever the shared values are in a way that's distinctive and human and free. Uh, so I, I, yeah, and and still conversant. I think it's interesting that your response to Scott's question um, about thinking for yourself, and I would take Alan Jacobs' concern about thinking for yourself to be that can easily be code for thinking in a particular way. And so, what he's immediately wanting is to be thinking with others, 
and and it was interesting to me your initial response to scott's question was immediately thinking for yourself in conversation with a good book (laughs) you're already engaged with someone who's worth thinking about not not that you already know you agree with them or disagree with them but that this is someone who's really worth thinking with right see i yeah i i don't know like i say i have to read jacobs myself i i even the the fact that it can be fake so you can say oh i'm thinking for myself and what you really mean is i'm joining this group (laughs) (laughs) and not not that one you know it's and it's often a matter of parents versus friends right it's like oh no i think for myself i don't think like my parents i think like Mm -hmm. my friends you know it's like that's not coherent uh, if you think it's true you know that's not really thinking for yourself but i i do think that we um, a little bit of individualism these days is would be healthy. A little more, uh, a little less uh, group thinking, mass thinking, um, conformity, uh, more creativity, more um, imagination. Uh, that's that's what I that's what I'm frightened about, and what I feel the lack of in in our common life. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it sounds like you kind of want to uh, hold on to and maybe cherish a little bit the the free thinker um, ideal, and I, I, it does make me wonder about you know it makes it brings up questions of um, trust and authority and how that plays into thought, which I guess that goes along with even as you are alone reading a book, um, you're forming. You're, you're sort of forming a moral judgment of a book and whether you should trust. You're, you're gradually, as you're reading, you're asking yourself, maybe even unconsciously, should I trust what this person is saying? Um, do I trust this person as a worthy conversation partner? And I, so I just wonder what that, like, and, you know, thinking for yourself, I think about the movie, The Life of Brian, where, um, the, the Monty Python movie, I just lowered the, the cultural. No, 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 I love Life of <laughs> Brian. If you read books, I'm sorry. I just write it down the thing. But um Monty Python is is a book reader's thing. Oh, okay, that's true. Monty Python, they are pretty intelligent. But the, <laughs> the, he has that scene where um he says, Think for yourselves, and they all shout back, Think for yourselves. <laughs> it, 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 makes me, it makes me think even think for yourself is its own type of authoritative statement that you then pick up and you imitate. So it's kind of reproducing that. Uh, right. the trust and authority issue, I guess. I suppose, you know, the way I think about it is connected with teaching. And I, and my teaching is at St. John's is a secular school. That might've been an interesting thing to say. You know, it's not a Christian school, despite the name. And these days it used to have a really broad mix of religious people and non-religious people. There's a bit fewer religious people than there used to be. I think they're afraid of going to a secular school and I can understand why. Um, but even so it's mixed religious, secular, conservative, liberal, etc. And, um, what I remember about myself when I was that age is I was very mistrustful, um, because truthfully I'd grown up in an environment, it was politics, not religion, but it was very conformist. You had to think a certain way. And I was resisting that as a young person but I wouldn't have been receptive to anyone telling me, um, you know, not this way, that way, or, you know, I didn't, I actually just couldn't trust authority. 
So a lot of young people who I see in my classrooms are like that. They have, they do not know how to trust. They do not trust anyone. Uh, and I think that for people in that circumstances, people in those circumstances, a, a program like ours, where you really lay off your teacherly authority, you give them books, which um, involve kind of in themselves, a kind of thinking for themselves and just the way that you described, you know, you're, you're, you're imagining the characters through your own mind. You're asking yourself questions about whether this truth is true or that's true or whether you like this or whether you don't like that. Um, and then you, and we don't, you know, and we, we try to, it's a small enough school. We try to let people develop whatever thinking is natural to them and not to, not to, uh, uh, to, to be as, um, I don't know how to put it, uh, to intervene with someone's serious thinking as little as possible. We pressure them to be serious, but if they're serious about something, we don't pressure them beyond that. And that teaches you if, if you, if you're prepared for it to trust yourself. And then when you can trust yourself, then you become better and better at trusting others. And that's part of actually what, why I think my particular intellectual training prepared me for faith was because uh, before that, like the not being able to trust anyone is terrifying. Like mm. you, you're too afraid to uh, receive things. So you, you need to, you know, you need to be let, it's like a plant, you know, in a garden teachings like gardening, you know, you've got to let things, something grow up into the thing that it is. So that that's, that's, I suppose what I mean by thinking for oneself. I mean, I think about letting my students free to um, pursue the line of thinking that makes sense to them without, without trying to uh, impose an agenda on them of any kind. I can impose behavior. You know, I can say like, no, you can't do that. You know, that's not appropriate in my classroom or don't say that word. You know, that's, that's different. As far as their thinking is concerned, I talk to them frankly about what I think and I listen to them and, I don't, I, I really stri- strive not to, not to tell them what to think. Other questions? I'll be glad. Tim, Tim, were you going to say something? Were you going to ask a question? Well, there were a couple of things that interested me. One was uh, the, the mention of Matthew Crawford and his concept of body knowledge, how you know things in ways that you're not really certain how you acquired that knowledge. I think part of it was his um, fascination with a particular tool or an instrument and learning how to use it in all its various ways and how that opened up new avenues of um, comprehension that you wouldn't expect to uh, gain without the, the devotion to that particular tool, like a musician who learns the, the violin uh, with lots of rote practicing that seems to be pretty dull. But after a while, it opens up uh, vistas that you never thought were there and that are almost endless at that point, probably are endless. Uh, but it takes an awful lot of, of mundane discipline to reach that uh, plane of, of, uh, Comprehension, I guess. Right. So, 
is this connected to the thinking for yourself thing? So is it the thought is that a discipline? I was thinking it more in in terms of the um, the tool. I, I guess using a tool like a mechanic, yeah. uh, or or say a microscopist, somebody who learns to use a microscope in ways that are more than just the the uh, the plain old uh, uh, techniques. They they uh, start to branch out with that tool. And it opens up uh, uh, different, uh, um, I, I guess it would be just, ex- it begins to explore new territory that you don't get until you've messed around with that tool for a long time. And that sort of, of knowledge um, seems kind of instrumental in a way, but uh, it's still profitable uh, for others. It helps you. Um, conform to the way the world is. It, it can be helpful to to others who uh, could use that knowledge. Um, but it, it always seemed to me that it's hard to separate the instrumentality of learning uh, and not have some expectation of doing something with that at some point. You never know when it will will come in handy. But uh, even if it never comes in handy, it's it's it helps you fit into the the grain of the universe, so to speak. Does that make any sense? I, I think so. Um, I mean, one of the things I was noticing when you the when you were first talking about how a tool can open up vistas, I thought that was an interesting language because that's that's already suggesting that. The craftsperson, as you're thinking about them, yeah, that's uh-huh. looking is looking at things. It, it's a way of seeing the world, and a way of serving, of course. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, it, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say you shouldn't use your your talents to serve people, but um, there's something that it's splendid just in that capacity to see things yeah. because of their, and you, you also started talking about violins, which music is also in the sense I'm talking about for its own sake. Right. So, uh, you know, I do remember I uh, had a housemate who was a violinist for a time, professional violinist. And one day something in her body changed. She didn't try it. It wasn't something she'd been trying for. And all of a sudden this different sound, this richer <sighs> Fuller sounds came out that she'd never been able to play before. I've, I've never forgotten that as long as I lived that it was <laughs> this, this vista opened up. Um, and that it happens in the mind too. Um, it's part of what's wholesome. I think about manual labor is that you can't fake it as easily as you, know, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell yourself, you can get lost in words. And think that you're thinking when you're not. And you, you can't get, you don't think you're washing dishes when you're not. I mean, you, usually it's it, either you're doing it or it's not. Or, you know, you don't, you don't think you fixed the car. You know, <laughs> yeah, just the, truth, the truth is going to come out pretty fast, whether you've done it or not. Right. Yeah. So, but I do think that the mind is, works similarly just to the way that you were describing it. That is that you don't know everything it can do. You don't know everything that you know. 
Um, there are these capacities which pop out in ways that are unexpected. And that's one of the ways that you know, one of the ways that I know that it's, it's a way of contacting reality, right? So the, the, there's a, something they say about mathematicians. There's a philosophical debate about what mathematics is really about. Are there numbers, <laughs> you know, up in, up in the sky or are there numbers just something we make up? Mathematicians all believe in the reality of numbers. Uh, and that's because they do this hard discipline work and either it, it, clicks or it doesn't click. Um, so there's, there's something about that contact with reality that I think is really common to the, the, the work with crafts and the, and the work of the mind. And, uh, so I, I, I agree with you that when you, when you poke really hard at, uh, instrumental versus intrinsic, it, it gets hard to understand. Uh, really what the, what the difference is. But I, I think the, you know, sometimes I, I like to use the language of seeking depth versus seeking something superficial. Sometimes I think that's more useful. Um, you know, you're not uh, status and money. These things are superficial. Um, and, uh, a, a skill that can, uh, uh, move reality in a way that helps people live is, can be deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm not, um, I'm not of the school of pro intellectuals, you know, pro intellectual life people who think that, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to look down on craft or on humble service. Mm-hmm. I want to try to keep them in the picture. Yeah, uh, because I I I think that intellectual life at its best is going to take on some of those features. Uh, so, yeah. You made an interesting distinction earlier that applies to this, um, and I'll just mention it quickly, and then Terry, I think you were about to say something. But it, the the work with the hands, for example, can both be an intellectual endeavor, but it can also, in its sort of routine character, sustain the thinking that that is able to transpire in that relative calm of the spirit that happens when you're invested in the practice. Mm. Right. And maybe it's worth thinking about what the other side of that is. So what's the type of labor that doesn't do that? Yeah. So, um, you know, so it, it, a lot of, a lot of contemporary jobs are like this, right? It's you're, you're, you're doing something complicated. It requires all your attention but it doesn't feel quite real. <laughs> yeah. um, this book that came out last year called BS Jobs, which I actually recommend. Yeah. It's got some amazing examples in it, but yeah. it's, you know, you're box checking or you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're keeping some piece of machinery moving that you need to move because of something else really far away that really matters. Um, and th- that kind of thing is, I think that really the kind of the enemy is the, these yeah. deadening, Types of which, which they, they take over your whole spirit and, um, and they don't, they don't leave you any space mm-hmm. and they're not, and they're not really that they don't have that sense of contact either mm-hmm. with other people or with, um, uh, or with reality. I think mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, this is part of what I found, you know, I, I spent some time in a monastery as part of the, uh, in, I talked about that in the introduction. 
one of the things that for me was so profound about that was uh, I, I couldn't do much intellectual work. It's not really what it was about. And I didn't have time. You do all these little tedious household tasks. <laughs> you know who they're for. And you know the people who do them for you. So, you know, it's not like in my ordinary suburban life when someone picks up the trash and I don't know them from Adam. Yeah. I don't even think about them necessarily. But you live in a small community, you know, you know who takes out your trash. Mm. And that, that can make all of that kind of work to other people. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, a very important experience that's, that's hard to have these days in a lot of contexts, at least in the world I live in. Um, you don't, uh, you don't see the connection. Either, either your work really isn't connected to other people's good. And that's going to be hard to face if that's true. Yeah. Or, um, or your work is, is really important. Like you're a home health aide or something. Like what you're doing is crucial. Uh, but you're not treated like it. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, you're paid nothing and everyone looks out on you and it's not a real job. Uh, yeah. and that, that's, that's, I think it's the background of the kinds of problems that I'm trying to, trying to think about is, you know, what's wrong with our life and, what are the good things about it? What, what, what can we try to, where are the islands of things that make sense that we can speak out? I was just going to observe a bit ago that some of the, the these, like these crafts activities, um, being a musician or a great athlete, um, this seems a little counterintuitive, but the thing that all of those have in common is the intellect. Because in most of those endeavors, it's not just muscle mass, it's coordination. And that requires vision and, and, and stringing things together, sequencing. And so those, those activities are all more intellectual than we know. It's just, it's a different kind of intellect, but that's the brain running things, you know? No, it's true. And, um, and the, the brain managed having to encounter a reality like there's right. you, know, you can only run so fast you know you can only go so far whatever it is uh no it's um no what you're saying is close to my heart i i have a, a nephew uh I, and uh who's the apple of everyone's eye because there's not many kids in the family and um, and he's smart as a whip i don't know that he's ever read a whole book in his life you know like a lot of the young people now so this is hard for me because I want to connect with him and there's just all he cares about is sports. Uh, but all of his, he has this incredible mind. His father's a scientist is very smart, but it all goes it, like it's memorizing football plays and, mm. and just thinking through all the intricacies of the game and, you know, in, imagining possibilities. And it is an intellectually intense endeavor, uh, and, um, you know, I, I hope he learns to use it in other ways. In addition, you know, I don't want him to stop doing it. He loves it too much, but, um, but it, it is for sure. Uh, it's, it's, it uses the mind. Um, well, it is, it is nine o'clock. So, um, I think we will wrap this up. Um, but, uh, thank you so much, Zena. Uh, it was a delight to have you and, uh, pleasure yeah, to be here. Pleasure to you. Great question. Yeah. So this is a very nice group. So thanks for having me. I've never been to Gainesville, and uh, but I, I hope I will. <laughs> well, if you ever uh, pop in, we have a great coffee shop called Pascal's, and uh, come visit us at the study center. Oh, uh, sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. So much. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you all. Thank you very much.